Hey folks, this is To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and if you've ever listened to the show before, you know that I have an affinity for uh, different ways of telling stories about the land. And that could be through a scientific journal. That could be through uh, stories of direct observation. Uh, that could be like a tracking journal. That could be art, um, painting, uh, mask making, all sorts of things that come up recently where people are focusing on <clears throat> how we interact with the land through art form. And one other way, if you look way back in the show's history, um, that I really, really actually appreciate this time of year is storytelling. And storytelling both in first-person accounts, but also sort of like the mythopoetic storytelling. I really love that stuff. There's a comes a time of year, usually around now, around uh, October, where just as much as the naturalist books litter my shelves and floor and beside my bed and beside on oh, my desk, you should see my desk, um, then just as much as those natural history books are there, uh, the mythological books are there. The fairy tales and folklore and legends are there. And I think that in legendary stories and in folklore and in mythologies and fairy tales, I think there are often traces of land-based connection that are remnant from before Christian colonization. And sometimes it's hard to find, but sometimes it's not so hard to find. But I like these stories because I think they trace back to a lineage long before Christianity that talked about direct relationship with the land and the land as the giver or originator of all life and all nourishment. Um, Often these older stories uh, detail interspecies communication. You know, sometimes the plants and the animals can talk to the humans. Um, sometimes they talk to each other. Sometimes there are wood spirits or sea spirits. And there's just a different way of looking at the world that I think, especially in the Western identities and the Western ideals, um, which become very rationalistic or both rationalistic and also Christian, um, those kinds of narratives of interaction with the land base have been erased. And often we start looking towards uh, often like indigenous practice or, or practices of connecting with the land uh, in these mythic senses in other ways other cultures. We, we sort of go to these other cultures to look and to find these things that we want to be nourished by. But there's not a lot of connection to. And for me, investigating uh, what might you call it? Like I just, 
I guess, indigenous stories of, of Europe, even though Europe is a vast, broad place, I still see a lot of overlapping narrative from across the continent, all the way going back to like uh, the Proto-Indo-European. So like similar stories across Germany, uh, like North, Northwest Europe, to the Norse, down to India. You know, there are some stories I may have even mentioned on the show before that the Proto-Indo-European goes way back. And uh, even folklorists, when they describe stories that have similar themes, there's common narratives across themes. And uh, one of the, the stories that I'm going to read today has one of those narratives of a repeating uh, trope of like, you throw something behind you when you're being chased and that thing that you throw will land and change the landscape to form a bit of a barrier between the hero and the one who is chasing the hero. And these, these, these little tropes, these little uh, details in the stories come back over and over and over again across cultures. And I, I really appreciate that. I think that it points to elements of a pan-European mythology, which I know is is uh, contested in a lot of places. But I think when it comes to the stories, this folk process of passing along the stories, it's a little bit more understandable how the same motifs throughout the stories could be repeated over and over again. Sometimes, though, the themes are lost. Certain themes that exist with certain stories are lost and they're harder to find. I spent a long time seeking out stories that might have elements of tracking in it, elements and, and, and bits and details where people are talking about tracking sign of animals. And there's a lot of interactions with animals, but actually there's, it's, there's not a lot of tracking sign. Sometimes there's elements of it. Uh, you know, someone might find a nest and then that points to the existence of a bird or, or even like a feather. They find a feather and the feather points to the existence of a bird. Um, but it's few and far between, not really detailed. Often heroes, um, especially male protagonists, hunter heroes, find tracks of animals and they follow those tracks to get to their quarry. I know one of my favorite stories... Uh, the Volsung uh, saga, or like uh, Sigurd and the Dragon. I've men read many versions where Sigurd tracks the dragon. Or Beowulf. Beowulf finds sign outside of the caves uh, where, or outside of the woods and the swamplands, the, the deep, dark forests where Grendel lives, and then Grendel's mother down in the, in the lake. So there's, there are elements of that. But it is hard to find. And I, I've, I've liked to find different ways of people communicating with, with the more than human world and the more than human world or the other than human world communicating with humans. Um, and, but I, again, I look for certain themes. And one of the themes that I've been looking for lately are stories of mushrooms. If mushrooms are such an important cultural element across Europe, uh, why, why don't we see more stories about mushrooms or mushrooms featured in the stories? 
and there are there are lots of books that detail the cultural land-based beliefs and values that mushrooms have influenced uh, more broadly. I know we have a book upstairs, Pig and Christmas, where it talks about a lot of the origins of Christmas coming from pre-Christian ideas and then uh, co-opted by Christianity and then that those Christian ideas or co-opted ideas then being co-opted again by corporations. And we think of Santa Claus, people know about that, and uh, Amanita Muscaria. And, but I, I've been looking for more than that. Where do, where do these mushrooms feature? And one of my favorite stories uh, that my partner first taught me a long time ago was a story actually about mugwort and snakes and uh, a young woman out in the forest picking mushrooms. And that's how she comes upon these snakes to teach her about the knowledge of the, of the wild er- plants, about the herbs, and that's how she learns about them. But they, they seem to be secondary to the story. And I mean, in the story that I want to share now, is, is, it is also secondary to the story. But I thought, you know, I like this so much that I, w- I thought I'd like to, to share the story, both because I think it's cool, I've not seen many references to this story anywhere else, and it's about mushrooms, and it's likely about uh, porcinis, or Boletus edulis, I think, it, I think it's, uh, yeah, Boletus edulis. So I'll just tell the story, and then I'll get into the discussion on Belites, because I think that features prominently in the story. Although it's not named directly, I think when looking at the region, which is uh, Western Ukraine, where the story is from, that the Bolites are the, the white mushroom is pretty common and probably one of the most picked there, uh, alongside morels and some chanterelles and stuff like that. But I got this story, I first heard this, or read this story, and I'm actually going to read it directly. I'm not going to tell it because I'm still learning it, um, from a book called Echo of the Green Mountains, Ukrainian Folk Tales. And this was published in 1988 in Kiev by Dnipro Publishers. Yeah, 1988. And every story I read in this so far is really nice. I like it a lot. Um, If you think of... Soviet era takes on fairy tales, you know, I guess there's probably a push for more of a national identity. And, but there's also sort of like an anti-capitalist perspective. I don't know if that's inherent in the stories before Soviet ideas took over or, or, or editors and uh, censors took over, but... I'm curious because some of some of the stories in here are definitely anti-landlord, anti uh anti-capitalist. There are some that describe rich, very rich families, and they have to go seek out uh those who know and those who know are poor. And they have to renounce their riches or give their riches away to a, to a, to get what they need. So it really has this anti-capitalist perspective that I really appreciate. And most folk tales, by na- by their nature, uh, highlight 
the struggles of folk people, right? Like the, the working class or lower class people, definitely not the rich. It was only until, what, you know, the late 1700s and 1800s and early 1900s where the rich became interested in the fairy tales and the folk tales, and they became a special popular thing for for those class people. Otherwise, they were seen as vulgar and crude and not very appropriate for well-learned people. So I like folk tales as well for that, that they, they sort of lean into those who do not have. Maybe, you know, they don't have larger forms, more expensive forms of entertainment. They have stories. But enough of that. Yeah, this is from Echoes of the Green Mountain or Echo of the Green Mountain, Ukrainian folk tales. And the story is uh, the Mushroom Brother and the Berry Sisters. Once upon a time, in a house by a leafy grove, there lived a forester and his wife. They had three daughters who looked like three bright berries. They also had a brown-eyed son. Love and harmony reigned in this family. The forester was a cheerful man, and his wife seemed to bloom among her little darlings. Trouble climbs no trees in the forest. No, it stalks the paths to get to people. And eventually it came for the forester's house, too. The man fell ill. Death had drawn his net around the house and in the woods, and there was no remedy for it. The forester summoned his children and said, I won't tramp the grass anymore. My time has come. Remember, harmony and health are the biggest wealth. Love your kin and never do any wrong to each other. The poor fellow passed away. They buried the forester, and the family's well-being seemed to have been buried together with him. His wife kept shedding bitter tears. How would she and her little children get by? The children tried to comfort her. Don't worry, mother. We'll pull, we'll pull through somehow. We'll go to the woods and gather berries and mushrooms. Days passed by, filled with grief and tears, which eventually sapped the woman's health. She called her children and said, When I'm gone, never go far into the forest, for there lives a wicked witch as cruel as a viper. She snatches little girls and holds them captive. All right, mother, we won't go. The forester's wife departed. The orphaned children mourned for a long time. Then the boy made himself a bow and went hunting whilst the girls gathering berries. People used to call them the berry sisters and the mushroom brother. Springs and winter flew by. The children had grown up. The berry sisters had become so pretty that neither spoken word nor pen nor artist's brush could possibly describe them. Their mushroom brother had become such a handsome and strong lad that when he strolled through the woods and thickets, the birds would sing their hearts out. The wicked witch kept watching the Berry sisters, day and night, and never let them out of sight. She contrived a way of luring the girls into her trap, and she would have ensnared them had it not been for the forest spirit who loved the girls and warned them. Never go to the dark thickets. Remember your mother's last witch. And they would not go. But one day, they failed to gather enough berries in their own grove. The girls were about to head for home when the crafty wicked witch sprinkled her potion around 
and suddenly the ground became a red blanket of berries. The sisters also blushed, so overjoyed they were. They kept picking berries and saying, This is going to last us three days. Our mushroom brother is going to like it. We can even sell some and buy ourselves white kerchiefs. Oblivious to the danger, they had gone deep into the thickets. The forest spirits warned the sister. Come back, girls, come back. Dreadful danger is awaiting you. Alas, the girls were so excited that they could not hear the voice of their guardian. All of a sudden, the wicked witch sprang out from under a shrub, seized the eldest sister, and the two of them disappeared in the thicket. Mercy, where are you, our darling sister? The girls wailed. There was no answer. The mushroom brother, who was hunting not far off, heard his sister's shouts and rushed to help. Calling out his sister's name, he struggled his way through the shrubs, looking for the wicked witch, but all in vain. Only a young chamois ran out into the glade and cast a woeful glance at them, and vanished into the undergrowth. The sisters and brother burst into tears, and grief-stricken, they eventually went home. Days passed and then months. The pain had somewhat eased, and the girls again started going to the woods to gather mushrooms. The wicked witch kept an eye on them. In fact, she had never let them out of her sight. Once, the girls had been looking for meadow mushrooms for hours, but could not find any, for the wicked witch had covered the mushrooms with thick grass. The girls were about to start for home when the ground suddenly erupted into mushrooms. The forest spirit warned them. Keep away from these mushrooms, girls. They'll do you no good. But the sisters were reluctant to abandon them. They would put one mushroom into a basket and two others would appear, just begging to be picked. Having forgotten about the danger, they soon found themselves deep in the thickets. Their baskets were already full, but the girls went on picking more and more mushrooms. We'll gather enough to last the winter, said the older sister. If only our eldest sister was with us, she'd have been so happy. No sooner had the younger girl said these words than the wicked witch sprang from under the shrub, grabbed the middle sister, and both of them disappeared in the thickets. From the dark, a voice was heard. Berry sister, mushroom brother, save me. The youngest sister was crying so piteously that the birds stopped singing and even the leaves did not rustle. Mushroom Brother, who was off hunting not far off, heard her cry and rushed to help. Alas, it was too late. The wicked witch seemed to have vanished into thin air. There was nobody around. Only two young chamois came out into the glade, cast their woebegone glances at the berry sister and the Mushroom Brother, and then disappeared in the undergrowth. Mournful, brother and sister returned home. A year had passed. Once Mushroom Brother went hunting far into the forest. The Wicked Witch, trying to ensnare the boy, mixed up all the paths. Meanwhile, his berry sister had made dinner and was waiting for her brother. But he did not come. She went out into the forest and started calling. Mushroom brother, where are you? 
The forest spirit answered her, Your brother will come soon. Come back into the house, daughter. Mind you, the wicked witch is after you. The youngest sister gave no heed to the warning and went on calling. All of a sudden, the wicked witch, wicked witch leaped from behind the shrubs, grabbed the girl, and carried her off into the thickets. The poor thing cried and called for help. Brother, save me from the wicked witch. The mushroom brother heard her cry and dashed there, but it was too late. The wicked witch had vanished without a trace. The boy stood rooted to the spot. He started calling his berry sister, but there was no answer. Only three young chamois ran across the glade looking at him, so dolefully that it pierced his heart. The mushroom brother could not feel at home in his own house anymore. For some time he gave in to sorrow and grief, and then he went to the forest to look for his sisters. The forest spirit whispered into his ear, Don't go there. You'll be done for. I had warned the berry sisters, but they paid no heed. I'd gladly do as you say, but my heart will not obey. I must go, the brother said. The forest spirit kept silent for a while, and then they said, If you really love your sister so much, I'll help you. Listen to me. Head for the crossroads, then plunge into the darkest thicket and force your way through the bushes all day. Go as far as a squat shack that rests on an oak tree stump. There lives an old hag, as ancient as this world. She is my sister, dreamy drowsy. She'll welcome you and try to treat you to some delicacies and put you to bed. But don't touch the food or drink. Don't sleep a wink. Otherwise, you'll forget everything and become her son forever. Do as I say, and you'll find out yourself what to do. The mushroom brother thanked him for his advice and set off. The whole day the boy forced his way through the bush, and in the evening he found himself in front of the shanty. Is there anybody living there? I say, let me let me stay the night. Out came dreamy drowsy. The boy politely bowed to the old woman, and she also greeted him. The mushroom brother came into the shack and sat down on the bench to rest. Dreamy Drowsy conjured up a dinner. Draw nearer to the table, laddie. Thank, thanks a lot, Granny, but I'm not hungry, he said, although his mouth was watering. Dreamy Drowsy made the bed. Lie down, lad, and have some rest. Thank, thank you very much. I'll just sit here, for I'm not sleepy at all said the boy, but he actually felt as if someone had charmed his eyelids. Dreamy Drowsy did her best to try to talk him into going to bed. She sounded as if she was playing cymbals, but the boy sat in silence. Seeing this, the old woman said, ah, You are a good lad and a good brother to your sisters. I'll tell you how to find them. It will take you three days and three nights to reach the wicked witch's house. Don't enter the house, but hide yourself in the bushes by the windows. 
After dinner, the wicked witch will open the cages which hold the chamois. The three chamois that come out of one cage are your sisters. They will come out onto the grass, and the wicked witch will go back to the house. Take your bow and shoot arrows at the chamois. If you aim well, the chamois will turn into girls again. Take them by the hand and flee. I'll give you a string of dried mushrooms. And if you feel hungry, eat one. That will be enough for the whole day. Also, take this needle, this pellet, and this jar. All this will prove useful to you. The mushroom brother thanked her and started out in the direction of the setting sun. He had wandered for a long time before he eventually found himself near the wicked witch's house. The boy hid behind a tree and peeped through the window. The wicked witch was cooking dinner. The aroma coming from the house was so appetizing that the lad could hardly control himself. In fact, he was about to rush into the house and beg for some food. But then he remembered about the string of dried mushrooms. So he ate one and felt as if he'd feasted upon honey. After dinner, the wicked witch came out into the yard and started opening the cages. Two chamois came out of the first cage, four from the second, and one out of the third. The boy kept anxiously waiting. Presently, the wicked witch opened another cage, and out came three chamois. They did not run to the forest, but stood on the grass and glanced sadly at where the mushroom brother was hiding. When the wicked witch had gone to wash up, the boy raised his bow, took aim, and shot an arrow at the nearest chamois. In a flash, the animal leapt and turned into the eldest berry sister. The boy took aim again and shot another arrow at the second chamois. It fell to its knees and turned into the middle sister. Finally, he shot the arrow at the last chamois, and she lowered her head and turned into the youngest sister. The mushroom brother ran up to the girls, who shone like the sun in their beauty, and they could not tear their eyes from each other. Forest spirit whispered to them, Run away! Hurry! Run as fast as you can! The mushroom brother and the berry sisters joined hands and fled through the forest. The wicked witch had washed up and went out into the yard. She counted the chamois and finding three of them missing nearly exploded with rage. She set off after them and the earth shook with her strides. The fugitive heard her steps and became so scared that they could not move. The forest spirit whispered to the boy, Drop the needle, lad. The mushroom brother dropped the needle, and in an instant a dense forest grew up behind them like a thick wall. One could neither ride nor walk through it, but the wicked witch had three axes, one made of wood, another of glass, and another of iron. She took the wooden one and started chopping the trunk so fiercely that the axe splintered into matchwood. So she fetched the glass one and whacked so hard that the hatchet eventually smashed into slivers. Then she took up the iron axe, but by the time she had made a path, the fugitives were far away. Her tongue was already hanging low, but she flew like a storm after them. I'll get you, she yelled. And she would have gotten them, but the forest spirit said, Drop the pellet, lad. The mushroom brother dropped the pellet, and in a split second a mountain appeared behind them, as tall as the sky. The wicked witch also had three spades, one made of wood, 
another of glass, and another of iron. She fetched the wooden one and started digging through the mountain so fiercely that the, the spade splintered into matchwood. So she picked up the glass spade and dug until she ran across the toughest of stones and the spade broke into, the fr into fragments. The wicked witch grabbed the iron spade and eventually managed to make a passage through the mountain. I'll get you all, she yelled, and rushed after them like the wind. The Berry sisters had grown so tired they could hardly move. The wicked witch was closing in on them, so the forest spirit whispered again, Drop the jar, lad. The mushroom brother dropped the jar, and before he could utter a word, masses of water flowed out of it and formed a very, very wide lake. The wicked witch started to gulp down the water and eventually drank up the whole lake to the last drop. She swelled and swelled and grew big as a mountain and fell down into the swamp and exploded. The Berry sisters and their mushroom brother reached home without any more troubles. Which brings us to the end of this story. So yeah, that's the Berry Sisters and the Mushroom Brother from the book Echoes, Echo of the Green Mountains, Ukrainian Folk Tales, published in 1988. Uh, printed in the USSR, Kiev, Dnipro Publishers. So there's so many cool points in that story. I love... Uh, you know, you you could read it to kids, but also if you wanted to read it to adults, that string of mushrooms around the around the neck that when he ate them, it made him feel like he'd feasted on honey. Um, you know, maybe that's not a specific rest reference to some sort of psychoactive mushroom, but perhaps it is. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So in my research so far, it seems like, like I said before, uh, chanterelles, morels, and bolites are some of the most common mushrooms in, that are picked most commonly in, in Western Ukraine. And in the Carpathians, uh, bolitus agilis, or as we call it, the king bolete, and the translation of which from the Ukrainian would be white mushroom. Um, that's probably the most common. And when I think of the story, even though the king bolete doesn't really have a white cap, it's all white on the inside. I think of, I think of that mushroom when I think of the mushroom brother and his brown eyes. And, uh, I thought I'd read an entry from Mushrooms of North America by the National Audubon Society. And this came out this year, 2023. Um, it says, species in this group, because it's a group, they're just complex. Um, species in this group occur as a large bolete with a robust cap that is often vaguely trapezoidal in silhouette. The cap is most characteristically slightly orange, medium brown, slightly lighter toward the margin, and fading to white at the edge. The surface is moist or tacky when fresh, and fairly smooth, but uneven with little soft pits or wrinkles. The pores are, are stuffed at first, like those of Boletus barosii, barosii, pardon me, 
Um, after opening, they stay tiny and whitish, becoming dingy yellow. The stem widens to a fat base and is cleanly white to very light brown, with a faint white raised netting pattern over at least the top, often the entire stem. The growth habit is single to several, scattered in small groups. The cap is flattened to cushion shape to deeply convex with trapezoidal, sometimes flattish in age, 6 to 18 centimeters wide, reddish-brown, orange-brown to yellowish-tan, evenly colored, paler toward the margin, or with a few large, blotchy, blurry blotches, occasionally discreetly cracking in dry weather. Pores are barely sunken, becoming sharply sunken, round, eventually two to three per, per millimeter, stuffed and white when young, becoming dull. In age, uh, brownish yellow, orange yellow, or olive yellow, faintly staining brown or not at all. The stem is widest near the base, usually remaining at least one third of the cap width and uh, 6 to 15 centimeters long, 2 to 5 centimeters thick in the middle. The flesh is white to cream-colored, sometimes turning faintly reddish or pinkish in parts. The smell is mild to pleasant. The taste is mild to pleasant, a nutty or sweet, sweet taste. The spore print is olive brown. The habitat is on the ground under conifers in the woods. Uh, it's ranged throughout the west, the Great Lakes region, and the northeast, reaching south through the Appalachians. The season is August to January on the west coast and July to October elsewhere. Uh, when it comes to lookalikes, there are probably several North American species in this group, but it's unclear which, if any of them, is the same European Betulus edulis. Many slightly less similar relatives in Boletus have different tree hosts, slightly different cap colors and textures, and some have skinnier stems. And this seems to be a, a very common mushroom. Um, and like I've been hearing from many sources lately, that North American species may not be the same as the European species, even though they're named that way, they're just they're reviewing the names and changing some of them to reflect genetic diversity. And the genetic diversity is what people are still learning about, still figuring out which mushrooms are which through uh, genetic analysis instead of just going off morphology. I'm really into like the, the folk history of, of these mushrooms, hence the telling the folk tales and the stories, but also learning about that through the etymology. And so the generic name, the genera name Boletus, comes from the Greek bolos, uh, meaning a lump of clay, while the specific epithet edulis makes sense. It means edible. So uh, understanding the Latin or the Greek, pardon me, because it's Greek, a bolos edulis, uh, uh, edible lump of clay. No. <laughs> That's an appealing name. I still haven't eaten this, this mushroom before. I've only eaten a couple of bolites, uh, chicken fat bolite, and maybe it's that one. You know, maybe it's just the chicken fat bolite. 
and I had to peel off the top because it was slimy. And, you know, it didn't taste that good. Wasn't that appealing. So I'd like to try this bolete and see how it goes. And maybe try some more. Um, I need to learn more about bolites. And I was thinking about getting a new book, but turns out there's a new edition coming out of a book, Bolites of Eastern North America by Alan R. Bessett. And I'll wait till the new edition comes out. And wouldn't it be a joy if I could find a way to interview Alan R. Bessett about his mushroom books? I've done a review of one of them, The Polypores of North America, of Eastern North America, and that was a really amazing book. So I can't imagine what this Boletus, this Bolete book will be like. I imagine it'll be really cool. I, I suppose it will be. I'm not sure, though. But I imagine it'll be quite a quite an impressive uh, mushroom, mushroom book. I hope to read some more stories about other things that I'm thinking about and focusing on. I might tell one next month, next week. I don't know. Because I'm by the time this airs, I'll have gone to a couple of workshops on asters and goldenrods. And there's an old folktale about asters and goldenrods. And I know I've told it on previous years on the show, but I'd like to tell it again because it's a, it's a nice story. And uh, I think it talks a lot about their, their ecology, at least a little bit. Um, yeah, let me know if you like shows like this. I don't know if people like shows like this. But I think that there's some folks out there who tune in just for the science, who tune in just for the species profiles. Some just tune into the, for the interviews with researchers. So I don't know if people like this folktale perspective on our connections with the land base, but I do. And you know, I've been listening to this show longer than anybody else. So I make this show for me and you. I hope you all enjoy it too. But it essentially just reflects whatever I'm interested in at the time. So I hope I hope there's common interest there and I hope folks are appreciating it. Um, if you want to learn more about the show, you can always go to www.tonowtheland.com. You can always email me, tonowtheland at gmail.com. Hit me up on Instagram at tonowtheland. And... Yeah, also, there's always a chance if you want to donate to the show, you can do that to knowtheland.com forward slash donate. That's always welcome. I appreciate it. And what else? I think that's it. Take care.